Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. Continue our study of this great book in God's Word, and let's look at Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 21. It says here, From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go into Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. But he turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan, thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. This morning we want to look at this text in regard to God's interests or man's. The disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ are facing grave danger. Uh, they join Peter in confessing, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And this meant that they had begun to grasp uh, something of His nature as God the Son in His office as the promised Messiah. And this was great, especially since it came by divine revelation. Yet it is not that they understood this fully. It's evident after the resurrection when Thomas makes the staggering confession, My Lord and my God. But the danger they faced lay in their failure to understand why Christ came. Visions of armies and kingly processions and a triumph over Rome turned in their heads and they missed the central focus of Jesus Christ in His redemptive work. And the idea of the cross and Christ's death appeared unthinkable to them. Now the, the disciples are not alone. Many people, in fact most people, stumble over the cross and the redemptive work of Christ. Thinking that admiration of Christ's person and His teachings will suffice, they gladly avoid the divine reason for the cross. The death and resurrection of Christ might be acknowledged, but typically thought of only in sentimental terms. Now this is glaringly apparent in the media, even today. I don't know if you've noticed how various media outlets will speak many times admiringly of Jesus Christ's example and His teachings and even mention His crucifixion, but they avoid, like the plague, the reason for the crucifixion. A number of years ago, there was a reaction to Mel Gibson's The Passion of Christ, and that demonstrated the offensiveness of the cross. Mel Gibson from Hollywood would focus primarily on physical suffering of Christ's passion rather than the reason for Christ's death. Debate raged with finger-pointing and uh, passionate argument on who is the, to blame for the death of an innocent man. But all of this missed the point for the death of Christ. 
Gibson tried to grapple with this through his own hand, holding the spike and driving it into the Christ figure, portraying his own guilt for the death of Christ. And certainly there is a sense that all of us bear responsibility for his death due to our sin. But that can can become sentimentalized and we can miss the point of his death as well. And by the way, Hollywood usually misses the point. Christ went to the cross because it was His Father's will. And only through such a death on behalf of His people could forgiveness be granted and a relationship to God be established for sinners. Because only through such a death could God's eternal justice be satisfied. I want you to consider how Jesus expressed this clearly in John chapter 10, verse 14 and 15. He said, I am the good shepherd, and know my sheep, and I am known of mine. As the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. In chapter 10, verse 17, he goes on to say, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it up again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. The commandment have I received of my Father. So why did Jesus die on the cross? Well, first of all, the Father commanded him, uh, commanded it of him. The Father's will in redeeming sinners radiates from the cross. Uh, there divine mercy and divine justice met with eternal satisfaction. There the gospel becomes the gospel or the good news for sinners. Now it's not difficult to get on the religious train of Christianity. A lot of people have done that. And they just roll down the tracks of sentimentalism and even hold admiring thoughts of Christ, and yet they never trust Him for their their Redeemer. On His part, Jesus leaves no doubt of the necessity of the cross and the resurrection in His divine purpose. And that's what He desired all who would follow Him to understand. Do you see this morning this central message of Christianity in your own faith? I want you to see this in this passage this morning. First of all, no cross, no gospel. No cross, no gospel. A change occurs at this juncture in the content of Jesus' instructions to His disciples. Uh, We note here in verse 21 the phrase, from that time. It indicates a new level of Christ's self-disclosure to his followers. Matthew's gospel has already given to us some of the indications on how this took place. First, Jesus alluded to his death and resurrection through several metaphors. He uses a wedding metaphor to explain fasting when he states in chapter 9 and verse 15, but the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken from them and then they shall fast. Later, he will compare himself with Jonah. He says in chapter 12 and verse 40, For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. In similar fashion, 
Earlier in the chapter that we're studying here, he adds, an evil and adulterous generation seek after a sign, and a sign will not be given. A wicked and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall no sign be given unto it, but the sign of the prophet Jonas, and he left them and departed. In metaphors, Christ hints at his death, burial, and resurrection. But at this point of our text, there's a striking difference. Look again closely at verse 12. It says, from that, or, or verse 21, excuse me, from that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go into Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. I want you to note particularly the word show. Show implies pointing out or explaining or making something known. He was proving the necessity of his death and the resurrection before it happened so the disciples might understand the truth of the gospel. He uses identical language in Matthew chapter 17 and verses 22 to 23. He says there, And while they abode in Galilee, Jesus said, said unto them, The Son of Man shall be betrayed into the hands of men, and they shall kill him, and the third day he shall be raised again. And they were exceedingly sorry. Behold, we are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day he shall be raised up. Later on, then, Christ will add even more details, referring specifically to his death by crucifixion. Now I want you to notice here this morning, as we look at this point, no gospel, no cross, notice the divine necessity. A key word here in this verse that we just looked at in verse 21 is also the word must. How that he must go into Jerusalem and suffer many things. Must controls the entire clause here. It is a necessity for Christ, a non-negotiable. It is this, the divine will that will be manifested. Peter expressed something of this in his first epistle. He speaks of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot, who redeemed us with his own blood, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world. That is, he was marked out before the creation to redeem sinners through his blood. John also adds in Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8, And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And as Jesus anticipated his own death and resurrection, he prayed to the Father in John 17 and verse 4, I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And so there is a compelling divine necessity about this word must. It is not simply advisable. It is not just merely expedient. It is not just the best way under the circumstances. The expression shows there is no other possibility the hand of God is in it, and this rules all else out. 
Even where the word must does not occur, statements about the inevitability of the cross can scarcely be understood otherwise. From the earliest days, the shadow of the cross lay over the Christ. We must get firmly in our minds that the cross was not God's plan B. Well, plan A didn't work out, so we go to plan B. We do that a lot, don't we? Not so with the Lord. Not so with God. This isn't plan B. It's not some unfortunate option among different choices or something over which he had no control. The will of God was never more fully accomplished than by the Son of God at the cross. And so why was his death and resurrection divine necessity? Well, there's three reasons, I believe, here. Number one, God's justice requires it. We're interested in forgiveness from God and relief from the weight of the guilt of sin. And God's justice requires legal satisfaction for the grace of forgiveness to be given. The long string of animal sacrifices in the Old Testament bear witness to the satisfaction of God's justice, each one foreshadowing the day when the Lamb of God would bear the weight of the divine justice at the cross. Paul uses both accounting and legal language to express Christ removing through the cross the legal obligations against us due to divine justice. You look at Colossians chapter 2 and verse 14, it says, Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. Now this is an amazing picture. Uh, The reference here is probably to a written contract in which we bind ourselves to do some work or make some payment, which remains in force until the bond is canceled. It's paid in full. That might be done either by the blotting out of the names, like you draw a line through the name. This one's blotted out. Or as it appears to have been the practice in the East, by driving a nail through it. This same apostle explained the reason for Christ's death as a divine satisfaction, and he used the word propitiation. And he wrote in Romans chapter 3, verse 25 to 26, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remissions of sin that are past through the forbearance of God to declare, I say, at this time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. God could not forgive anyone without his own justice first being satisfied. And he did this through Christ's death on the cross for all that would trust in his Son. There's a second reason, and that is God's mercy provides it. Though the disciples did not grasp what Christ was telling them, he insisted on the necessity of his suffering, death, and resurrection. They were shocked at the thought of it. And yet as the hymn writer expresses about the work of Christ on Calvary, mercy there was great and grace was free. Plainly, we need God's mercy because we do not have any merit to offer 
him that which would satisfy his justice or compel him to forgive us. We are sinners, both in nature and in practice. And because of this, we are helpless to fulfill the law's demands. And so we stand condemned before God for our sin. And God displayed his rich mercy for sinners at the cross. As Ephesians 2 and verse 4 says, But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us. A third reason would be that God's Son secures it. Some have taught the idea that Christ simply came to give us an example. You know, He was a, a wonderful man. He was a great teacher. He was just a good example in how, how we are to live. Even including His death as one innocent at the hands of cruel men. And we've been told how that Christ's death inspires people to be sacrificial and giving of themselves to others. Do you know what? That's not why he died. God sent his son to secure for all that would believe an eternal relationship with him. The Bible tells us this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners of whom I am chief, wrote the Apostle Paul. Our Lord declared, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. It is secure so that Peter testified later, he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy hath begotten us again into a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. And that is security. And so, so we see the divine necessity here. We also see it, the object of faith. So if there is no cross, there is no gospel in Christianity. But what are we to do with the death and resurrection of Christ? And that really is the point of what Jesus made uh, to his disciples. He said, here in our text, he must go into Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Jesus was not just giving the disciples some strange, unwanted information. He was laying before them his reason for coming into this world and with that, what they must believe concerning him. And they were still several months away from the crucifixion. Would his death be a great tragedy to them? Or would they finally recognize the plan and the purpose of God in His death and the fact that his, their eternal salvation depended solely upon it? I think it's notable that Peter had already confessed Jesus to be the Messiah and as the Messiah, the Son of the living God, in verse 16. But Jesus gloried in this confession not because Peter demonstrated some keen insight, but because the Father had chosen to reveal it to him, as it tells us in verse 17. And so with the rest of the disciples, Peter recognizes the person of Christ, understands something of his uniqueness as the one promised from Genesis to Malachi in the Old Testament. And as the Christ, they recognize something of Christ ruling over his kingdom, though they still were thinking of the physical, not the spiritual but they had not come to terms with the costliness of Christ's kingdom or the price 
necessary for sinners to be called the children of God. They apparently were overlooking David's graphic description of the crucifixion in Psalm 22 and Isaiah's depiction of the suffering servant upon whom God would lay our iniquities and crush him with divine justice in Isaiah 53. So Christ takes them back to the reason he came on this, to this earth in the first place, to die in our stead before the white-hot judgment of God at the cross. Their faith and ours must not simply acknowledge that Christ is the Son of the living God, but must trust in the sufficiency of Christ in His death for us on the cross. A faith that falters in embracing Christ crucified and raised from the death is a deficient faith. No cross, no gospel. Secondly, notice the best of man's wisdom. The best of man's wisdom. Christ's announcement of his impending suffering and death did not go over very well with the disciples. The promise of his resurrection three days after his death seemed to kind of just go right over their heads. And so here we see the best of man's wisdom trying to talk Christ out of the divine will. By the way, that's what people do when they pray selfishly, wanting God to bless their plan instead of being willing to follow God's plan for their lives. How many times do we say, God, this is what I'm going to do. Would you please bless it? What we need to be doing is, what is your will for my life, God? You cannot talk God out of the divine will. And so we see here, first of all, wrong belief. Peter is positive proof that it is possible to know much about Jesus Christ and even be able to state a significant theological truth about Him and still fail to understand the work that he came to do and miss the gospel. Not wanting to rebuke Christ in front of everyone, it says there that then Peter took him and began to rebuke him. I believe the word took would indicate that he kind of took him aside. I also take the verbs here to express something of the forcefulness on Peter's part. Maybe he caught him by the sleeve and said, hey, come here, uh, and you just pull him aside and say, I want to talk to you about that. And the rebuke went beyond just the words recorded. Peter evidently laid out his argument as a rebuttal to Christ's prophetic words, and yet in reality all this tells us is that Peter was satisfied to believe the wrong things about Christ. And many people today are satisfied to believe the wrong things about Christ. Peter was willing to leave out the suffering and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He was not giving any thought to his own need for redemption or the payment that was to be made for his sin or the divine justice that was to be satisfied. He could think only of the great time that all of them would have when Jesus would ride in on the white horse into Jerusalem and be welcomed as the general or the king by all the throngs of people. You know, bigger is better. He was just thinking about the physical. He was thinking about a king, King Jesus, delivering Israel out of the hand of the Romans. 
He was anticipating a physical and material kingdom. And of course, he was going to have a well-positioned spot in that government, no doubt. Evidently, Peter had forgotten what he felt when he saw something of Christ's majesty and cried out in Luke chapter 5, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord, after he saw the great catch of fish when they had let the nets down on the other side of the boat. He said that. He said, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And when we forget our sinfulness and we forget the judgment of God against us as sinners, it is very easy for us to think very little of the cross and the resurrection. And we can satisfy our religious needs with lots of sentimental thoughts about Jesus. And then Christianity becomes a nice, warm, fuzzy religion that makes us feel good because we're identified with something so wholesome and so good. Proverbs tells us in Proverbs 14, 12, there is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. They had the wrong belief. They also had misdirected zeal. Even after what Peter said, we cannot help but admire his zeal. He loved Christ. He wanted no ill fortune to come to him. But it was a misdirected zeal. He told Jesus, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. The phrase, be it far, has a meaning, be merciful. Term developed into a strong prohibition that expressed the person's desire that God would show mercy to spare a person of some harm or misfortune. He said, Be it far from thee, Lord. Again, he uses very strong language. He says, Be it far from thee, this shall not be unto thee. A double negative to express here that not only at any point would his suffering and death happen to Christ, that couldn't happen. Yes, zealous indeed, we admit Peter was, but he understood nothing of what God had purposed and planned before the foundation of the world. But you know what? Later on we find him preaching on the day of Pentecost and he declares the divine will concerning Christ. In Acts chapter 2, verse 22, he says, Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourself also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having raised or having loosed the pains of death, because it is not possible that he should be holden of it. And though men are culpable for the death of Christ, it took place by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. And even though Peter failed to see this as he rebuked Christ, he saw it later. He realized that it, it was good news. The good news of the gospel began in the heart of God before the foundation of the world and God's predetermined plan was to put it an end to the agony of death through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That brings us to the crux of our message here, God's way or man's way? 
as we're brought face to face with the same question that Peter faced, do we embrace God's way or man's way concerning the death and resurrection of Christ? Notice, first of all, Satan's trap. Jesus used the same command that we find in the temptation in the wilderness. In verse 23 it says, But he turned and said to Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Go away! Now why did Christ respond with such strong language at Peter's misdirected zeal? He explains, Thou art an offense to me, a stumbling block. And the word literally means or implies a trap. This kind of trap? No. Not this kind of trap. Maybe closer to this kind. Some of you know about this kind of trap. Because the word here... Thou art an offense to me, or a stumbling block, or a trap, is a term used for the bait stick for trapping. And some of you could tell me a whole lot more about that than I would be able to tell this morning. I'd probably tell you something about this trap. But this trap, even though Bob wants me to go, uh, just not feeling led to yet. But you know, the seriousness of what Christ came to do weighed upon him. Men would have been satisfied if they had just carried on a miracle crusade and kept feeding the multitudes. But that's not what Jesus came. He didn't come just to heal and to to feed the multitudes. But Jesus came to do the will of the Father. I seek not my own will, but the will of the Father which hath sent me. Satan had earlier tried to deter Christ from doing the Father's will, and now it is as if Peter was standing in Satan's place. And thus the rebuke, though soundly correcting, Peter took aim at the source of Peter's rebuke, and that is Satan himself. And we are to understand that Jesus' death was so central to God's plan that to try to avoid it would be the work of none other than the devil himself. There is no doctrine of Scripture so deeply important as the doctrine of Christ's atoning death. The truth is that God wants us to regard the crucifixion as the central truth of Christianity. Right views of His vicarious death and the benefits resulting from it lie at the very foundation of Bible Christianity. And if we're wrong there, we're ruined. So Peter's careless, mistaken words could not be tolerated. Jesus rebukes him loud and clear. He says, you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's interests. In other words, what is at stake, what is most important, is not what we think that Christ ought to do, or how we think Christianity should be established. What matters is God's will. And the only place we find life and forgiveness and peace and right standing with God can be found only in the will of God. Trusting the crucified and risen Christ. 
The only place that God is glorified is in His will and His will being accomplished. And for that reason, the cross redounds to the glory of God. Where do you find God's will? Right here. In God's Word. So we find Satan's trap, but we also find God's triumph. At the cross, God triumphed. What we understand of this triumph will be infinitely eclipsed from the vantage point of gathering around God's throne. The triumph over sin and death and hell and Satan and the triumph of God's law, justice, righteousness, and holiness center in the death and resurrection of His Son. John's revelation pulls, us, uh, pulls back the curtain for just a glimpse of this truth as the angelic host and the redeemed of all the ages glory in the triumph of God through Christ. We find it in Revelation chapter 5, verse 12 and 13. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing and every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in Him heard I say, uh, saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto Him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. As God's eternal purpose centers in the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I would ask you, is the death of Jesus Christ for you and His resurrection from the dead the focal point of your life and your faith? If so, then you're not going to be interested in living for yourself but rather obeying and pleasing the Lord. And as we close this morning, I would ask you to carefully examine your life this morning. Are you trusting the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for your salvation? Or are you just playing a religious game, thinking that if I do enough good deeds, I attend church occasionally or don't do anything real, real bad, that God will look favorably upon me and allow me into heaven? Christianity is much more than a sentimental, emotional, feel-good exercise in religion. Folks, true Christianity is putting your complete faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior and then having your focus completely in living for Him. Examining yourself this morning, is there sin in your life? Deal with it. Get things right between you and the Lord. Don't fall into Satan's trap, but accept God's triumph over death and hell. Let's pray.